following is an in-depth story analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. Super Fuzz, or Super Snooper, as it's called in the opening credits, is an Italian-American film released in 1980. It's a screwball comedy about an absent-minded weirdo cop who gets unlimited superpowers after getting caught in an atom bomb explosion. He doesn't stop being a cop or wear a superhero costume, but it's a superhero movie in every other sense, replete with a lot of the standard tropes and cliches. Standard mob boss villain, damsel in distress, girlfriend who can't deal with his double life, sort of, a secret identity, though in this case our hero keeps his secret on accident, outlandish big action set piece at the end, and oh man, is this one outlandish. The hero having to cope with losing his powers, even a superhero theme song that almost never stops playing through the entire movie. It's like the song in Condor Man. And I had some flashes to Condor Man watching this. I don't know if I'll ever get that repetitive disco number out of my head. He's a super snooper, really super trooper. Ugh. This one was requested by David Crabtree, who may be our only subscriber who has ever seen this, and possibly requested it because the main character's name is also David. He told me he saw it on TV a lot when he was a kid. Apparently it was played on heavy rotation on HBO, I think. I can only imagine channel surfing and starting this somewhere in the middle. I turned into the drama queen from yesterday's movie, The Trial of the Incredible Hulk, screaming, WHAT IS HAPPENING?! David has requested one of the stupidest movies I'll have ever reviewed. I mean, it's stupid on purpose, so that's not really a slight against it, I'm just stating facts. This is another farce that's difficult to review because it's hard to tell just how dumb it wants to be. I suspect not quite as dumb as it is, but it is a mindless flick that knows it's mindless. It falls somewhere between Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and The Return of Captain Invincible, on both the absurdity scale and the story quality scale. It's more coherent than Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, but it's nowhere near as clever and smart as The Return of Captain Invincible, which is farcical and ridiculous, but has an internal logic and is about something. Super Fuzz is about the zany hijinks that ensue when David Speed gets omnipotent Q-level superpowers. There are flashes of satire and social comedy, but only flashes. Not a lot to analyze here. This review is going to be more about running down the major beats of a movie I doubt most of you have seen and pointing out the craziest stuff. And it gets crazy. There's going to be a lot more synopsis here than I usually do, partly because this might be the most obscure thing I've ever tackled. And because so much of what I have to say is just, what? Huh? Its characters are pretty one-note and not fully formed, and they do whatever the story needs them to while trying to get a laugh, though that rarely happens through most of this movie for me. But it's not a Police Academy or Austin Powers-level farce where the lack of internal logic is the internal logic. There aren't random, impossible non-sequiturs. It's not a cookie-cutter story used apologetically as an excuse to string silly, over-the-top gags together. It's all extremely absurd, and there are lots of gags and pratfalls, most of which, I'm sorry to say, aren't that funny. But the absurdity is inconsistent. It's a buddy cop movie with a superhero motif slapped on top. It's inspired by, or ripping off, Superman, clearly like Condor Man will in a few years. This is released only two years after Superman, though, so it must have been really rushed out in a hurry. There's even a scene where David, our super cop, reads a Superman comic, so he can get the idea to try to fly. And like a lot of Superman ripoffs of the time, it just doesn't understand superhero comics, which it sort of wants to be. Not only does it use a lot of the obvious tropes, but it has a hideous four-color intro, where real footage has been dot matrixified. 
it's really hard to look at. It's hard to tell what the footage was even of. The white words are difficult to read in front of it, and the horizontal lines really don't help. Not to mention, again, an obnoxious earworm of a theme song to match the horribleness of the visuals that I wouldn't play at the funeral of my worst enemy. It feels like more of a cop movie than a superhero thing until the last 15 minutes. And I guess it's like Condor Man in that way, too, where that was more of a spy thing than a superhero movie. But it definitely counts as a superhero film, despite the lack of costume. I still say Robocop is a superhero, but this guy has bona fide superpowers and also runs off and takes the law into his own hands. Amusingly, also running from the law and working against the system that's in the wrong at the time. This is indisputably a cop that is also a superhero. The movie establishes a lot of rules that it constantly breaks or isn't very clear about in the first place. There are several moments where characters make weird logical leaps the movie plays as totally reasonable, or they just accept the impossible except when the story requires them to freak out. I suppose that could be the joke. Everything's counterintuitive. Nobody reacts like real people would. The movie knows it's completely plot-driven, and it just has its characters do whatever it needs them to in the moment. A lot of movies like that would usually have a character look at the script to decide where he wants to go next, like in the Muppet movie. But if that's what it's going for, it's not communicated well, and it's not a smart enough or self-aware enough movie to get away with it. It seems pretty self-indulgent, so it's not funny. I would describe a lot of this as you had to be there humor. I don't know what the mood on the set was, or the attitudes of the people involved, but it often watches like a movie these people are making for themselves rather than for an audience. Case in point, this is an Italian-made movie directed by Sergio Corbusi, an Italian director known for spaghetti westerns in the 60s. The movie's set in Miami, Florida, and stars Terrence Hill, an Italian actor with a heavy Italian accent. And the mobsters in the movie all speak with intentionally bad Italian accents. If you're Sergio Corbusi, maybe that's hilarious. And if you see the movie in Italy, maybe that translates to some degree. But this movie was intended primarily for American audiences. It's all acted in English and stars a predominantly American cast, including the not-at-all-unknown Ernest Bornine as David's partner. That's a borderline production in-joke. I had to wiki the movie before I understood why the main character has an accent. David is from Miami, as far as I can tell, and like in Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, nobody ever mentions that he has this thick accent and doesn't sound like he's from where he says he is. In 1980, there is no Wikipedia. You'd be hard-pressed to find any information about this movie at all. So you'd just be scratching your cranium, trying to figure out why an American wasn't cast in this American part, or else why the actor isn't trying harder to fake an American accent. He kind of tries sometimes, which is part of why it's confusing. His accent gets thicker as the movie goes along. In his first couple scenes, I hardly notice. Then the obligatory voiceover to flash us back to the origin, and suddenly he has this really thick Italian accent. He never tries to fake American at all in the voiceovers, which happen throughout. At first, I thought it was a different voice for some reason. I assume a lot of this script was shot in sequence because by the end of the movie, any attempt to mask his accent is long gone. But if he's cast as a joke, why fake an accent at all? I don't get it. That's really my whole review. I don't get it. Next. I'm just kidding.
It watches like a Tommy Wiseau performance in that it's totally miscast, the accent is hard to place, and is real thick, and you can't always tell what the guy's saying, and the line delivery is often wildly inappropriate and needs more takes. I sometimes wonder if Corbusi got a lot of takes, and these are this guy's very best, like the disaster artist portrayed Tommy Wiseau. He has one of the cringiest deliveries I've ever seen, and yeah, it's the room weird. Speed tries to convince his shallow girlfriend that his superpowers are a good thing, and he says, you're going to marry a walking, talking domestic appliance. And then he goes into a bizarre robot voice and says, batteries included. So here's the story. I'm going to review this one mostly linearly. If you have a hard time following this, it's because it's weird, and will probably sound like a six-year-old wrote it. A six-year-old who has just seen something about nuclear missiles and state executions on the news, is chewing bubblegum, likes cop movies, read a Superman comic, or saw that movie, and has an odd aversion to the color red. Here goes. So David Speed is a bumbling cop in Miami, which begs the question as to why the Statue of Liberty is on the movie poster. He's sent by his sergeant to a Native American village called Creektown to collect a fine on an unpaid parking ticket. Already, this reads like a stage play written by a junior high student. The town has been evacuated because of a top-secret NASA experiment with red plutonium, but nobody told David about it, and Sergeant Dunlop, that's Ernest Bornine, didn't know about it. Red plutonium. I'm guessing if you put that stuff in Doc Brown's time machine, it creates black holes when it gets to 88 miles per hour. And by the way, that's where most of the social commentary I was talking about is. That seems to be a joke about how terribly Americans have treated Native Americans throughout history. But then we depict the Native Americans and their village in the most stereotypical way possible. So I don't know, maybe that's not what it's doing. Maybe the movie just thinks that iconography is funny for some reason. It really feels like I'm supposed to see a totem pole and laugh my head off. Then things get bizarre, as if this setup wasn't weird enough already. David radios to headquarters to tell them he's just leaving a note because there's no one home, and the connection is messed up for no reason at all, so they can't transmit to him and warn him of the nuclear test. David finds an alligator in his boat, pulls out his gun, thinks about shooting it, and then thinks better of it, because he's an idiot, but he's also a nice guy. David fires into the air to scare the animal off, and the rocket with the red plutonium explodes exactly when the gun goes off. I'm not totally sure, but I think the idea is that he actually shot the rocket accidentally. And I'll give the movie that one. It's hilarious. Sergeant Dunlop gets demoted for sending this rookie to a nuclear test site and getting him killed, even though it was an honest mistake. Nobody told Dunlop there was a test happening. But whatever, he's Officer Dunlop now, directing traffic, and Speed shows up inexplicably like he's back from the dead which surprises Dunlop, but only for a minute. And then they're just off doing the buddy cop thing like it's business as usual. Dunlop finds every stupid reason to be mad at Speed when he should be over the moon that he can't be blamed for getting Speed killed anymore because there's Speed. There's no scene where they go back to the precinct to talk to the chief, get Dunlop his rank back because Speed's not dead. No scene where all the cops are perplexed and bewildered that this guy should be dead but isn't. And again, it's not because of cartoon logic. People don't always act counter to how you think they would. Dunlop will spend half the movie not believing Speed has superpowers because the script keeps conveniently stopping them from working every time Speed uses them in front of them. And then later in the film, when Dunlop meets Rosie LaBouche, the actress he's obsessed with and once worked with as a stunt actor, he's suddenly a sergeant again. 
just for no reason. We never see him get promoted. It's never talked about. He's just referred to interchangeably as officer and sergeant for a while. And then once Rosie says it, he's a sergeant for the rest of the movie. Now, is that an intentional inconsistency? Is it supposed to be funny because it doesn't make sense? Or did the script, as I suspect, forget Dunlop got demoted? I should mention that this isn't even how the movie opens, but since it's the premise of the film, I wanted to lead with it so you wouldn't be any more lost than you likely are right now. The movie opens with a teaser showing us where Speed will be in the third act of the movie. We're doing that Daredevil on the church flashing back to his origin thing. It's a provocative and unusual opening, I'll give it that. David is awaiting his execution for the murder of Dunlop, who we haven't met before because ostensibly he's dead. A lot of ostensible death in this. Never been introduced to a superhero like that before. This is the fourth time the state has tried to execute him. They've tried three different ways before. Lethal injection, hanging, and firing squad. Even though the last hanging in the U.S. was in 1936. Utah, though, has still had firing squad executions, believe it or not, as recently as 2010. And this time, they're going to try the electric chair. David survived every time because of his superpowers. Honestly, although I often resist these start in the present and then spend most of the movie in the past kind of teasers, this one's not terrible. It's a creative way to establish the superhero and his abilities, though we don't totally know what they are yet, and it gives us some clues about what we're about to see in the origin, like the red flowers LaBouche sends to David in the execution chamber. Believe it or not, they're supposed to stop his powers from working and make sure he dies. Yeah, I'll get to that a little later. This opening isn't as much of a tease as these things often are, and even though the structure and pacing of the movie are pretty flimsy, I did find myself wondering if the execution plot point would be better established linearly. I'm actually not sure this isn't the best way to handle it. But then, so many other crazy things come totally out of left field and blindside me. Maybe it would have just been as well served if it starts with the origin and then, in the last half hour, David is charged with and convicted for first-degree murder in, like, 17 seconds, I I might add, especially because it is effectively the third act plot point. So I don't know, I'm conflicted about that. After Speed seemingly returns from the dead, he immediately starts realizing he has superpowers. He can lift a manhole cover just by thinking about it, he can make accurate predictions of what will happen in the next few seconds, and possibly sees through walls. Those might be the same power, I'm not sure. He's bulletproof, he can land from a several-story drop without breaking any bones, he has super speed, and eventually he realizes he can do anything. He can make an entire stadium of people disappear. He can hover off the ground. He can walk on water. He does everything short of time travel. Though he does get from one part of the city to another in like three seconds, so I don't know, maybe he does time travel. But sometimes his powers don't work at all, and the movie tries to get a lot of comedy mileage out of A, Dunlop not believing him because his powers never do what he says they will, even though he saw the manhole cover and witnessed the prediction of elephants walking by minutes after they were reunited, the first half of the movie is kind of a bad sitcom. And B, Speed hurting himself trying to use his powers when they're on the fritz. Speed almost drowns seconds after we find out he can't swim. A lot of setup and payoff is done within the same scene in this movie. And he breaks all his bones after he jumps out a window to prove to Dunlop he landed on his feet last time he accidentally dove stories out of a window. And every time he gets hurt, his powers come back just in time to save him. The movie is totally inconsistent about how long that takes, but it has something to do with getting rid of his weakness. Well, just what is David Speed's kryptonite, you ask? Donuts? The sun? Gravity? Being in the general vicinity of dead people? Nope, 
It's dumber and more preposterous than any of those. It's the color red. David's weakness is red things. And I thought how close Clark Kent had to get the kryptonite and how much of it killed him was hard to keep consistent. If David sees something that's the color red, he stops being an int-level being and he goes back to being easily breakable and killable like all the rest of us. Or at least, that's the exposition we get originally when he allegedly discovers his weakness from an old retired magician, Sylvius, who got superpowers the same way. Or that's what David tells Dunlop. What I saw was Sylvius tell David that it has something to do with concentration, and somehow David got the color red takes away my powers from that. Sylvius says, sometimes it only takes one dumb thing to take away a person's concentration. A place, a person, a color, a noise. Okay, so David is looking at a red wall when Sylvia says that, and somehow I'm supposed to notice the word color in the middle of an arbitrary list of things at the same time as he's looking at a red wall. But how does he get, oh, it's always red from that. The movie hasn't visually been driving this home the whole time like it ought to if that's what I'm supposed to get from that. And if Sylvia's got his powers from the red plutonium, wouldn't he have the same weakness? I guess it's speculation, but David and his friends assume the weakness is red because it's red plutonium. Which, yes, sounds stupid, but not any stupider than red plutonium itself, or how the law works in this movie, or anything. It's pretty obviously the movie trying to give the audience information in a lazy way. So yeah, it's a guy saying one thing, and another guy inferring something you couldn't possibly get from that exchange. I swear, it's like two different hack writers working from notes they made on cocktail napkins wrote this, and didn't bother to read their work next to each other before the movie was filmed. At the end, the rules have changed. It's not about David seeing red, it's about his close proximity to red. So when Rosie sends Rose's, oh, wow, I just thought of this, I guess that's why her name is, is Rosie. When she sends Rose's to David in the execution chamber, because she's secretly working for Torpedo, a mob boss you've seen 153 times, trust me, they're supposed to neutralize his powers so he can finally be killed. David sees them and his powers are gone. But then, right at the end, after David downs Torpedo's airplane, crazy to think that Torpedo never fires a single torpedo in this insane movie, Rosie's red feather boa gets wrapped around David's leg. He never looks at it, but it messes up his powers. And apparently the rules have changed even before that, because there are red stripes all over the biplane, and he's staring right at them while he's using his powers, but his powers work just fine. Oh, first rule of silly superhero weaknesses, kids, make sure you don't accidentally put whatever the weakness is in the frame when it's not supposed to be affecting the hero. Second rule of silly superhero weaknesses, don't make it one of the most common colors on the spectrum. I mean, I appreciate that if the guy is going to be omnipotent, just so he can do whatever we want him to do in a scene, like in Lester's Superman 2, at least he has a major enough weakness so he's not impossibly powered all the time. Red is so common, his use of powers wouldn't have to be so completely contrived. It might be interesting to do a superhero movie with an insanely powerful hero who only gets those powers like 1% of the time and is never sure how long he can keep them. You just have to have him powerless most of the time, not keep contriving a lack of red. I mean, if I was making this movie, I might have him try to fashion a superhero costume and make it red, because a lot of superhero costumes have red on them, and maybe it would be amusing that the reason he couldn't use his powers is because of his own suit. 
At one point early on, David wants to be alone with his girlfriend in the middle of a football game, so he closes his eyes and makes everyone in the stadium disappear. Yes, this is an actual scene in this movie. Everyone disappears except for one guy, a criminal the police just happened to have been looking for. So when David brings everyone back, good thing they're not dead or drifting out in space or something, he chases the guy down and makes a hero collar. The reason the criminal didn't disappear is because he's wearing red. Okay, forget for a moment, again, how awkward this weakness is. David didn't see the guy, so his powers weren't affected, but he couldn't vanish the guy either because he was wearing red. Alright, the rule set for the weakness remains awkward, but I'll go with it. You're telling me out of an entire, sold-out, crowded football stadium, no one else is wearing red. And it's not like a regular football game where you'd see, like, seas of green or seas of blue, like, everyone is wearing t-shirts or jerseys for two teams, and in this just neither happens to be red. There don't seem to really be sports fans in this sold-out sports arena, there's just the one guy wearing red. Or that's what the movie's pretending, because if you look at the crowd shots, there are other people wearing red! Several of them! Why did they get disappeared? And yeah, the camera zooms in on the shirt, and it wants us to start putting this red weakness thing together, but it happens too fast, it doesn't happen often enough, and too many red things look closer to burnt orange in this movie. Now, it might just be the transfer I'm watching it on, but the way I'm seeing it, there's not a lot of Rudolph's nose red in this movie, but not all the red is orange. Like, there's red that's really actually red, so I don't think it's a contrast issue. The color of the criminal's shirt isn't that far away from the orange of the railing David is leaning over, and that doesn't take his powers away. But like I said, maybe all these oversights and lack of attention to detail are all supposed to be the joke. Ha ha. It's such a cop-out if that's the mentality of the producers on a movie like this. Well, it's fine if we make mistakes, because they'll just be part of the comedy. Anything we screw up, people will think is hilarious because it's wrong. The magician also conveniently happens to be on Torpedo's radar. He stumbled onto Torpedo's counterfeit bill plot just like Speed. I assure you, it's a scheme to rival Superman 3 in sheer excitement and thrill. I guess if you wind up with powers in this universe, you're destined to find bad guys, no matter what line of work you're in. And it's just a really slow news day in Miami. David finds the counterfeit bills way earlier than this, but Dunlop doesn't believe him because he can't see them. This is another really weird and awkward use of powers. Let me see if I can break this down. So Speed sees a truck that says Torpedo on the side. Immediately, Dunlop should be suspicious because he knows that's the name of a major crime boss. But he's not. Speed instantly knows there are fake bills inside, and Dunlop thinks he's full of it. I guess because last time he used his intuition, David called that elephants were about to pass, but not nuns. Oh, that must have been a fluke. Anybody could have guessed elephants on a busy intersection in a metropolitan city. I wish they'd stuck around a while. I bet right after the nuns, there was a marching band, a couple in a rowboat kissing, and a family of ducks. I swear some days you just can't get rid of the color red. As soon as they open the truck, Speed's powers stop working. We find out later because the inside of the truck is painted red. Conveniently. Yeah, red's a popular color, but you don't usually see 18-wheelers painted inside. You know, a really easy way to make that less contrived? You say that Torpedo knows about the magician's superpowers since he's been trailing him, and they painted the back on purpose. It didn't just happen to be like that. 
So Speed can no longer see the counterfeit bills. They're hidden by fish. You can't have a goofy farce like this without fish jokes. It's like a rule or something. But we don't find that out in this scene. Dunlop just thinks Speed is making stuff up and sends the truck on its merry way. So what exactly did David see? I know this is a stupid comedy, and I'm going to get comments saying, you're thinking way too much about this, Cap, if anyone is still listening to this, but I can't help myself. There's too much normal person logic here to buy this, even in this pretty out-there context. David claims he sees counterfeit bills inside the truck. Now, so far, he's occasionally been able to guess when something is about to happen, but he hasn't seen through solid objects. Unless he saw elephants through the wall, I'm not sure. David can do anything. So it could be any power. Maybe it is that intuition he talks about. He gets a flash of something that's there, but hidden. Or maybe it's x-ray vision. But that's really selective. Unless it's telepathy, like one of the thugs on the truck was thinking about the fake money, so he knew about it. If it's not that, the whole thing is really confused. David sees the fake money, can instantly tell it is fake, even though it's really good counterfeit, but he doesn't know it's inside the fish. All to contrive a situation that I think is almost harder to do this unnaturally than to dream up a more plausible scene where our heroes are that close to Torpedo's scheme but don't solve it yet. And so that Dunlop will still go nuts thinking David is pretending like he has superpowers. There's also this tacked on subplot, like somebody just suddenly in the middle thought to throw this in, that contradicts earlier scenes and seems designed to turn David into a horrible human being. And then the movie just ignores that he's a horrible human being. David's girlfriend, Evelyn, seems totally fine with David's omnipotence until she suddenly freaks out on him and decides she wants a normal boyfriend. When David makes the whole stadium disappear, she hardly seems phased by that. Now later, she seems to think she was somehow imagining that, so I guess that's the explanation, but when the script arbitrarily decides it's time to stop stringing Dunlop along, it could have done this at any time, by the way, because it's not remotely directed by logical character choices, David floats in midair and proves his superpowers once and for all. Evelyn seems fine with the powers there, saying, yeah, she knew he had those abilities, and there's her boyfriend floating in midair. But when she randomly gets superficial and decides the powers are weird and David's no longer the man she married, like Thing's wife in Fantastic Four, except with even less reason to totally give up on her man, David does the worst thing he could possibly do. He uses his powers to freeze her in place, forces himself on her, and kisses her, and tells her, I'm not joking, we're going to get married whether you like it or not. This scene is screwed up. And in the moment, I think it's suddenly taking a wild turn. Like an M. Night Shyamalan sort of turn. Oh, this isn't the fun screwball comedy I thought it was. This is supposed to be like a nightmare. This guy is supposed to be horrifying. He's starting to take advantage of his power, and he's going to become a monster. And remember what we know about from the beginning, who ends up actually killing his partner and is supposed to be executed for it. That is really where I thought this was going. Yeah, there's been no lead-up to David suddenly losing his mind and going all chronicle, but that hasn't stopped this movie from doing whatever the heck it wants before this. But nope. Insanely creepy scene makes me question absolutely everything. Then it never comes up again. It does remember that Evelyn doesn't like the superpowers, and the final shot is so cringeworthy I can't even believe it, despite all the insanity in the third act, which I will describe in a minute. We jump to David and Evelyn's wedding. 
and she's dyed her hair red so David can't use his powers anymore, and the self-absorbed, manipulative wife can have her cake and eat it too. Except this guy is a would-be rapist, so I guess I don't care that she's trying to control him. They're both awful. I mean, him more so, clearly, but the movie doesn't even realize it. It thinks this ending is adorable. Ah, the smart, inventive girl who wants a normal life forces a compromise on the bumbling idiot man. The end. Yeah, bet that marriage turns out great. That's built on a solid foundation. So backtracking a bit, Speed and Dunlop find out where the rest of the counterfeit bills are in the most idiotic way possible. The bad guy brags about how he's not stupid enough to tell him his plans, and then he proceeds to tell him everything. It's been a buddy cop parody with superpowers this whole time, but now it's a straight-up superhero parody. Bad guys always tell the hero everything, right? Yeah, but the cliché is the bad guy who explains everything when he's got the hero right where he wants them? You know, like the warden on Rurapente in Star Trek VI? They've got him cornered here, and he goes, I would never be stupid enough to tell you where the money is on this boat! And then he names the boat! I get the joke. It's just not funny. I can never tell how stupid any of these people are supposed to be. Like everything else, that changes from scene to scene. It's not an intentional trap, because Torpedo wouldn't plan to sink his boat with all the fake money aboard, and the goons on board seem to improvise the sinking in the moment. So, like, he wasn't luring them there. The goons decide to try to kill Dunlop, who's come aboard and is looking for the money by himself. Yeah, don't bring backup, and don't send the superpowered guy down. That would be silly. It looks like Dunlop is going down with the ship, trapped in one of the lower cabins. When Speed lands the helicopter, he's arrested for the first-degree murder of his partner, a frame job by Rosie LaBouche, who claims Speed is trying to extort protection money from Torpedo. So the chief takes her word for it against the cop who was thought dead, came back, and keeps managing all these miraculous arrests, and then charges him with the murder of a man who hasn't been confirmed dead. Then he's tried, convicted, sentenced to death, and executions are attempted on him four times in the span of, I don't know, a few hours? A couple days? Because Dunlop turns out to be frozen and alive on that ship when Speed gets out of the execution room and saves him. Of course, that's impossible, but no matter how long it's been, even if he's frozen down there for six months or a year and somehow survives, like Captain America stuck in ice... The state of Florida has the absolute swiftest justice system on the planet. Miami is the most efficient city anywhere with murder convictions and executions. That is my favorite part. That stuff is hilarious. If the whole movie was at that level of absurdity, it might be a farcical masterpiece. That's when we've hit 60s Batman-quality ridiculousness. You're gonna think I'm making up this next part. You know, I'm not even gonna comment on the rest of the third act. The critique is inherent in the synopsis. I'll just tell you what happens. Speed gets the priest to take the roses, busts out of the electric chair room after electrocuting everyone on the other side of the glass for no reason. I'm sure they're all fine. And then he goes to the boat to rescue his ostensibly murdered partner. Speed finally pays off his chewing gum obsession by blowing a bubble so big he and Dunlop ride on it like a hot air balloon back to the city. Oh, I guess I forgot to say, he really likes chewing gum for some reason. He also really likes beans. That's his last meal before he's supposed to be executed, but we never do anything else with that. And then there's a big fight with the airplane I told you about, the one with the red stripes that Speed is immune to for no reason, and Speed crashes the plane. 
Then Dunlop decides to jump off the huge bubble, thousands of feet to the ground, sure that Speed will catch him. Speed runs toward Dunlop, but gets that pesky feather boa Rosie is wearing around his leg, and that's when Evelyn tells him he's got something red on it. You got something red on you! He kicks it off just in time to catch his friend without getting crushed and without Dunlop splatting on the pavement. And they both burst through the earth and disappear. Everyone thinks they're dead until Dunlop phones from China. Yeah, the force of his fall sent them through the earth and all the way to the other side to China. Then the wedding I told you about and credits. I... I I don't... I... Um... Yeah. One out of four. Thanks for listening to the 12 Days of Superhero Rewind, and I'll be back again tomorrow with another one. If you'd like to support Superhero Rewind and Geekvolution, go to patreon.com slash geekvolution, and for just $2 a month, you can get regular episodes of Superhero Rewind three days early and access to my and Eric's uncensored talk show twice a month, Geekvolution After Dark. I take requests for regular episodes of Superhero Rewind or Science Fiction Rewind on Patreon at the $50 tier. You can also become a Patreon producer at the $10 tier, and I'd like to thank all of our Patreon producers right now, including Dylan Muschiello, Nick Manna, Eamon Singleton, Cletus Winslow, Remy LeBlanc, Derek Jacob, The Day Ghost, Michael Gulick, Magpies Nest Productions, Kareem Roberts, Lot 10 Underground, Michael, Mark Micheletti, Carl Maxey, Dimitri J., John Johnson, Jacob Schneider, Nathan Hanford, Aram Zangana, Joey Crouch, Sartaj Govind Singh, Ethan, Gui D, Caleb, Malik Myers, Lone Wolf Jedi of Gotham, Chewbacca's Lover, David Crabtree, Simeon Scott, Justin Hayes, Marie Flowers, Clark Whitfield, Ian McKee, Jeffrey Patrone, and Malik Myers. Tune in tomorrow to find out what the next movie I've been gifted to review is on the 12 Days of Superhero Rewind. I'm Captain Logan, and I will see you in just another 24 hours.